ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life? Did you? If you could. Would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. Did you know that it's Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month? Macy's is highlighting some really cool AAPI-owned brands right now, like Cardon, Kaja, Amelia George, and Hey Meave. Whether you're looking for a good Korean skincare or affordable and trendy jewelry, they've got you covered. Plus, you can help to support college access and student success when you donate online or round up in-store to APIA scholars. APIA is the nation's leading nonprofit organization devoted to the academic, personal, and professional success of Asian American, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander students. Shop Asian American and Pacific Islander-owned brands at Macy's.com or in-store. In celebration of Black History Month, Hyundai is proud to support the OWN Network. Have you ever thought about your car personality? What's your vibe? Do you like the classic fully gas-powered engine? Are you a best-of-both-worlds type? Driving on battery power while keeping gas on reserve? Or are you more inclined to choose a convenient hybrid ride? Whichever your vibe, there's a Hyundai Tucson to match and a powertrain to get you there. Okay, Hyundai. Visit HyundaiUSA.com to learn more about the 2023 Hyundai Tucson. The 2023 Tucson Plug-in Hybrid is only sold in California, Colorado, Connecticut, Maine, Massachusetts, Maryland, New Jersey, New York, Oregon, Rhode Island, and Vermont. Hey, y'all, and welcome to Trials to Triumphs. I'm Ashley Blaine Featherston Jenkins, but you can call me ABFJ. This week, world-renowned painter Amy Sherald talks to me about sacrifice and what it means to accept risk. Amy knew she was destined to be an artist, but pursuing her dream meant going against her parents' wish that she take over the family business. For 15 years, working as a waitress while developing her artistic stride, she struggled to make ends meet and gave up so much dating, children, to focus on her art, all while living with a serious condition. But Amy continued, undeterred, knowing she would one day create transformational art. And let's be real, she painted First Lady Michelle Obama for the National Portrait Gallery. Amy also wanted success to provide for her family, her friends, and herself. Because that's one thing I felt guilty about when I was a starving artist, was that, you know, my mom would need things and I wouldn't always be able to help her. And I'm like, at 35, 36, like she should be able to rely on me. But I'm waiting tables and, you know, I could pick up a couple of shifts to like help her. But um, it wasn't in a way that I wanted to. And I, I wanted her to live the rest of her days, you know, in luxury and happiness and having experienced everything that she's never experienced before. So many guests on the show have talked to me about creating a legacy. Amy understood at her core that to become the painter, the giver, the person she wanted to be in this world, she'd have to face sacrifices and risks that could derail her. 
I'm so grateful to Amy because she reminds us that who you are, your passions, your drive can transform you in the lives of those you love. God has already ordered your steps and Amy's triumph is a reminder to all of us to just keep going. Success doesn't and shouldn't happen overnight because it's the journey that teaches us the most valuable lessons in life. This kind of thing doesn't happen overnight. And I don't think it's sustainable if it does happen overnight, you know? Because there's things that you need to live out before you get there. Like, I can't imagine what I would be like if this happened when I was 24. Like, would I have the confidence that I have now? Would I be able to take the criticism? I would have would I've spiraled out, you know? But like now I know who I am, grounded in my body and my womanhood. And in our Sankofa moment, Amy tells us about the portrait opportunity that got away. I wanted to paint her when she was alive. And uh, we had, we were like two degrees of separation away. And so my partner knew somebody who she knew and they asked her and she was like, why? She needs to write me a letter and tell me why. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. There are any number of reasons you might consider selling your home. To move closer to family, live within a smaller budget, or just wanting a change of scenery. Whatever your reasons, having to figure out all the various housing market trends in your area may not be what you signed up for. That's where an agent who is a Realtor comes in. Realtors have the expertise to help you find the right price and navigate the process to sell your home in a way that's right for you. That's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors. Hi, Amy. Welcome. I'm so happy you're here. Thank you. Happy to be here. Thank you so much for joining us. I am a huge fan of your work and I am just delighted to get to know you better. So (laughs) let's dive right in. What did the South give you having grown up in Georgia? Wow, that's a big question. Um, (laughs) It gave me my life's work. Um, Mm. Everything that I paint about is because of how I grew up and my perspective and the things that I experienced. It gave me um, deep roots, I think, understanding now because of, you know, ancestry DNA, like where my family came into the country. Um, And that was in South Carolina. And it's home, it's history. it's, um, It's everything I am and everything I'm not, you know? Yeah. Wow, everything you are and everything you aren't. That's very, woo, that's deep. What was your upbringing like? If you could kind of paint what your world, what your life looked like as a child, what did it look like? People used to tell me my life looked like the Cosby show, kind of. Like my dad was a dentist. We lived in a, you know, a pretty big house, went to private school, et cetera, et cetera. But it was... It was interesting. My father practiced dentistry for seven years and then he was diagnosed with um, Parkinson's disease and he had to Mm. close his practice. So, um, you know, a family of five living off a disability, you know, five years into it, we had 
like the facade of what would look like wealth, but we really didn't have any money at all. You know, my mom did what she could to make sure that we had what we needed and that we didn't feel like we were living in any kind of deficit. And luckily my aunts and my uncles, nobody on my father's side had any children. So Mm. we also had aunts and uncles that were able to, to do for us, but it was, yeah, it, it was, I guess it was complicated. I mean, on one hand we had my great uncle's barbershop, which is called Cheryl's barbershop. It opened up in 1898 and it's the oldest black owned business in the city. So on one hand we had that and he had a mortuary and, you know, we had, a deep family history in Columbus. And then on the other hand, it's like my least favorite place in the world because mm. of, you know, the residual effects of racism and, you know, being born in 73, there's just a lot still happening. Like I was in college and dancing with a white guy at a college dance and his friend pulled him away. Like you can't dance with that N word. And that was mm. like 1991 too you know what oh, I mean God. so you feel different in your skin down there but it was it, it was great like all that being said it was great I had a pretty idyllic childhood Amy I want to go back you said the south gave me my life's work what do you mean by that I mean you know when I had to move back after graduate school when I was in my 30s to take care of my family because I was the one with no job Um, (laughs) that's in the air quotes, I realized that a lot of who I was, a lot of my characteristics, um, how I thought about myself and life was based on this like construct of what the South kind of represents and, um, that I spent the majority of my childhood and high school career Kind of when I first got to high school, I had to assimilate to be more air quotes black um, because at that point in time, I didn't have any black friends like outside of my cousins that lived in Mobile. So mm, interesting. Um, okay, felt different. And then on the other hand, you're also assimilating to make all the white people around you feel comfortable too. Yeah. So um, I remember I came home from school <laughs> from high school and. Uh, my mom heard me say something on the phone and she was like, why are you talking like that? Mm. And she's like, I did not send you to private school to talk like that. And I was like, well, you know what I'm saying? Like, I was trying to talk like this. You know what I mean? Like, I was trying to talk to <laughs> I was trying to talk, you know, I wanted to be cool and accepted and like, you know, all that stuff. Um, so, yeah, it's so many layers, so many layers. So how old were you when your father was diagnosed with Parkinson's? Seven. Do you remember how your father or your parents told you? How did that shift your family dynamic? Did you become a caretaker? What happened during that time? I don't think it was like a big announcement or anything. I think like my family didn't, my mom and dad weren't like big communicators. Like I think now in present day, if I was a parent, it would, be like a conversation with my child and like, this is how things are going to change or whatever. Um, but for them, it was just something that happened. All of a sudden my dad's at home and I'm like, why is dad at home? And they're like, well, he has Parkinson's disease. And I'm like, what's that? 
you know, so um, had my encyclopedia to go, you know, look it up. Yeah. But he was very introverted. My dad was very quiet. Um, so he didn't talk a lot about it. I just, you know, he was 47 years old. I'm 48 years old now. And that's when he got diagnosed. And so, you know, as you grow into your life, you kind of realize like those things that your parents were going through. And I understand now like why he was a little bit withdrawn, wasn't comfortable going to my basketball games because he didn't want to see, he didn't want anybody to like see him, you know, moving around and like either you're moving around like a lot because the medication is working or you're completely stiff and almost paralyzed. Right. And so you have about an hour of viability, like activeness that you can have with the medication. So he, we didn't do a lot because of that. Like everywhere we traveled was like within the tri-state area. So it was like Florida or, you know, Hilton Head or mm-hmm. places like that. Um, but I, I always tried to reach to, to reach him where he was. And I, I don't think I knew I was doing that, but I would always like go sit with him. He had a big walk-in closet that he would sit in and he would like do his Bible study every morning. So I would go in there and color and we really Mm. wouldn't say anything. I would just be sitting there with them hanging out, you know? So it was, and it was stressful on my mom. I mean, she became the head of household essentially. Yeah. um, And everything came down on her. She did start working for a while as like a bank teller and I kind of took over. So then the caregiving did kind of click in for me and she did that for two years and she said she quit she told me later on like she quit because she saw that I was taking over her role in the house mm. and she didn't want me to have to have to grow do up that, too fast know? I was like kind of, waking yeah. up yeah I mean but I was yeah. always like an overachiever so I was mm. always like you know <laughs> I remember like she would take my sister to school and she would take my little brother with her and I would stay there because I went to like 12 o'clock kindergarten. Okay. So while she was gone, I would like back in the house, wash the dishes, make up all the wow. beds. And like, I'd be sitting there watching Captain Kangaroo when she got home, like a true Virgo. Like I did all of this mm. without your help. And, you know, just to kind of get mm. that attention that I wasn't getting as a middle child. Having become a bit of an overachiever as, as a child, as a pretty young child, some it sounds like it's just who you were, but also some of it sounds like circumstantial, like you kind of had to. What as a now 48-year-old are you holding on to of that? And what have you had to work on releasing from that? Uh, from like the middle child syndrome? Yeah, but just I- I'm talking more so about specifically the need to please, the need to achieve, the need to be excellent. How much of that have you kept and has served you well? And how much of that are you working to unlearn? The need to please, I learned how to say no and live with other people's uncomfortability uh, mm. when I was like in my late 30s. Mm. right so like I tell this story I don't think anybody knows this story I met a guy and I got married after like three months of knowing him wow and when we were standing at the altar of like city hall I was 28 years old I just went to Baltimore to start grad school Mm. 
Like I knew I was like in that moment, I'm like, I'm not supposed to be doing Woo! this. Like this is not what I'm supposed to be Amy. doing. But guess who uh, couldn't say no? Uh, right? Uh, so I've then got I the ended up getting married. <laughs> <laughs> I ended up getting married. Um, and I was only married for six months. It was super crazy. They say never get married when you're grieving, and my dad had just died. Mm. So I blame it on that. But yeah, I look back at that and I was like, that's crazy that I was so unable to have the, you know, the agency that I needed to just be like, you know what? I don't think this is what I want to do right now. You know? Wow. So wow. luckily I didn't have to live with any of those mistakes. Mm. Um, yeah. But like, I knew as soon as I said I do, I was like, I'm going to outgrow this man. You know, like I just saw my future all of a sudden and I was like, this isn't my future. Wow. 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 So when you look back at Amy then and look at Amy now, in terms of your agency now over yourself, what are you most proud of? I think it's being able to forge my own path despite the fact that it's not like my mom didn't support me, but like it wasn't, you know, your parents have control over your life and mm-hmm. they have say so on, you know, these things that they want you to do. And I know that um, it was very difficult for me to, like, I wanted to please my parents. I wanted to take over my dad's practice. I wanted to become a dentist. Mm. But then I also had this desire to, to be an artist. And I knew that's who I truly was. And so just having to tell them like, this is what I'm going to do. And I know I'm going against your wishes, but this is who I want to be in the world. And this is how I want to live. You are a world renowned artist, but it takes sacrifice to get there. So what would you say have been some of the biggest sacrifices along the way and how have you dealt with them? Yeah. I mean, I, I say, uh, living without much. I mean, like the advice I give younger artists is, um, you have to be comfortable with risk. You have to be comfortable with failure and sacrifice, which means like, I had to go buy a tube of cadmium red light instead of getting my nails done or, you know what I mean? Like living with not a lot of money, which by the time I hit my thirties was like, not great at all. You know, it. I didn't feel like I wanted to date. I was really focused on my career. So I'd say I went without having children, without dating, because I didn't want those things to get in the way. I think that's like, honestly, I think that's the biggest thing outside of like material things, you know, and not, you know, your friends being in very different places than you are. So when I was in my 30s, 36, 37 waiting tables, you know, my friends were doing different things. Like they were physician's assistants and they had these real jobs. And I think that, you know, um, it can start to make you feel like you're not enough, but then you understand in your core that this, there's a means to an end and being this waitress allows me to be in my studio four days a week. And that's, you know, you put your energy towards what you want to come to be. And so that's, that's what I did. But it was, um, you know, my mom was embarrassed that I was a waitress. 
<laughs> so, you know, now she has bragging rights. Yeah. Now she, <laughs> you know, she didn't have bragging rights. Like, it's a whole thing. Like, you know, you know what, my, yeah. the okay, whole Jack and Jill crowd, like all yes. of that, like, I've, for some reason, I've always been anti that. Like, I was an AK-18. My mom was an AKA. Um, but I didn't want to join Jack and Jill. But, you know, all my friends were in it. And so all the moms would get together. And it's like, what's Amy doing? Like, you know, yes. later on, she's like, well, she's a waitress. At this yeah. Restaurant. You know what I want to get into, Amy? And we haven't talked about this on the pod yet. And I think you're the perfect person to talk to this about. How do we forgive our parents for doubting the dream? I think so many of us deal with that. You know, parents that in it, and when you look at it, it's it's not really their fault. It's what they know. Their generation, it's like you go to college, you get a job that pays you well, you get your benefits. You, you know, it's very linear. And I think, you know, those of us, I would say, born in the 70, 70s and after, really, it's just a different, it's a different way that we approached our lives and our careers. But how do we forgive our parents for doubting the dream and then being really excited when the dream that they didn't really believe in comes to fruition? Yeah. I mean, I never held it against her because I knew she just wanted me to be okay. Yeah. And she only knew one way to be okay. Mm-hmm. Um. And she only knew certain out, she only had like uh, a vision for certain outcomes in life. And that was to be a doctor, that was to be a teacher, that was to be these things that she knew, you know, um, had sustainability. And so, you know, I, I didn't have anybody to look at when I was growing up to see, yes, I can do this, nor did she, right? So if I'm telling her I want to be an artist she's like who's Andy Warhol you know it's she doesn't have a vision and I couldn't give her the vision because I didn't have that vision either I just had a desire so um so I don't blame her I don't I think you know I tell I say she's she's exactly the kind of mother that she needed like I needed somebody to prove wrong and that's that's you know, it's not like I was waking up every day like I'm gonna get in it, but you know, it 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 gave me the motivation that I needed to keep pushing forward because I wanted to prove her wrong that you know I could do this and everything's gonna be okay and I can be your retirement plan. Mm, I can be your retirement plan. I'll buy you a house. Like wow, like that is just yeah. I mean, had I stuck to what my mother wanted to do which, you know, I told her at five, I want to be a neurosurgeon or something random because your parents want to hear that. I mean, I, I make more money now than I would if I was a neurosurgeon. Yes. Yes. Come on, Amy. So actually I want to know that when did it click for you? What, what was that moment? Right. So you're going from, you're a waitress at, what did you say? 35, 36? Till I was 37. Yeah. Okay. So you're waitressing until about 10 years ago. What changed? When what happened where you gave walked to your boss at the restaurant and was like, I'm out of here. I wish you the best, but I'm going over here. What was that moment? What changed? I just knew it. I just I don't know. Like it's just something that you know. I think everybody when they have something that 
is empirical that they're working on and they need to support themselves while they're doing it. Like everybody comes to a point where either I have to give a hundred percent of myself to this, or it's not going to happen because we pull things towards us. And I think that maintaining um, that deep desire and almost desperation for it to happen is what makes it happen. But if you're like slightly comfortable, you don't have your antenna up and you're not manifesting like what you should be manifesting. Yes. Because, you know, for me, it was like, if it didn't happen, then I'm falling over the cliff. Like there was no safety net. There was no plan B. So, mm. you know, I think that's really important because it keeps you striving and dedicated until the wheels fall off. Is this house a good price compared to others in the area? Are prices going up or down? If I don't make an offer right this very moment, will I miss my chance? These are just some of the questions a home buyer might ask. And these are the sorts of questions an agent who is a Realtor can help answer. Because Realtors have the expertise, data, and access to specialty training to help you navigate the process of buying a home. They provide support, guidance, and have your back every step of the way. That's what Realtors do, because that's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors. So what you're telling me is that it wasn't like an opportunity came. It was just that you were like, I know that I need to be done here in order for me to truly manifest what is for me. Wow, that's good. So I then, got to the point where I had figured out what kind of work I was making, like what I became known for. I was like six paintings in maybe. And I knew I had something that was going to be, you know, important enough mm. to be relevant enough to be a part of art history in a way, like I didn't have that language then. And I knew I had to keep, I had to do it. Like I had to do it. But I mean, I was, I was eating frozen kale and, and like chicken sausage and rice for like two years. Frozen Just, kale, chicken sausage and rice sounds delicious, Amy. It was. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good struggle meal, Amy. Yeah, it's a struggle meal. <laughs> oh my goodness you're like okay in your 30s a struggle meal is not ramen noodles it's frozen kale chicken sausage and rice what because at that time I was also living with heart failure so yeah so Amy we also have to get into that I have a mother who um has heart disease and has had a quadruple bypass and you know the heart the heart's obviously at the center of it all, but the heart is so important. And you don't even really realize, I don't think how important your heart truly is until you're dealing with an issue with your heart. So talk to me about that time in your life when you found out what that felt like and how you got through it. I was 30 years old. I was, uh, all through grad school, I was training for a triathlon. I made a friend in my program whose husband had completed some and he was, you know, giving me some great advice. So I was like biking, swimming, running. I was like up swimming at 5 a.m. And at my teaching intern by eight, you know, but I was really into it. But I also had had a dream. Like, I don't, I don't tell this story a lot either because the, the older I get, the more I'm like, did that really happen? But it I happened. Had a dream I haven't even heard it yet. Younger, it multiple times that I would be running a race and I would 
cross the finish line and then like collapse, right? So I was coming to a place where I wanted to to try like a like a, a, a biathlon, like a half biathlon or something like that, like just to see what um, a race would feel like. And somebody told me like you should probably go get checked out before you do this. Like you know it's pretty strenuous. So I went to the doctor, and the doctors like obviously you're healthy, like you work out, eat right. She said, you have an irregular heartbeat. And I'm like, yeah, I've had that most of my life. So she decided just to, you know, proceed with the few tests just to do due diligence. And one thing led to the other. And I, I found out that my heart function was at 18%. So and my, the, what I left there with was not that it was 18%, but what I left the doctor's office with was he said, you can't even do yoga. Like, don't do anything to get your heart rate up because you could, you know, there's a condition called ventricular tachycardia where your heart rate speeds up and then flatlines. So he's like, you don't want that to happen. Like you need to see if you get insurance or you get a defibrillator. I didn't have insurance. So I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. I can't have the surgery to get a defibrillator to like protect me should this happen. And I remember going down to the social security office in Baltimore and I sat there for like four hours and finally got called and she was like you can't have insurance and I'm like why and she said you make too much money and I'm like well how much money do I need to make she said $350 a month and I was making like 600 because I had interns it was like yeah you know and I'm like I need this surgery you know so it was oh god it was it was kind of crazy it was but it worked out where are you at now with your heart? Like, how's your heart function? How is your like day to day? It's the same, yeah. but I live, I live a normal life. I think that the issues that I have now are because I'm approaching 50. So like drinking isn't the same. Like I'm, I'm like, I have a glass of wine girl now instead of two glasses of wine. <laughs> you wake up. Yeah. Okay, Amy. So you were definitely thrust into the spotlight when you painted portrait of the former first lady Michelle Obama at the National Portrait Gallery, which blew my mind. It still blows my mind just how beautiful and how ordinary in the sense of you get to see someone that is so big and special and larger than life in such an ordinary state, but so beautiful and in some ways abstract. Um, It really took my breath away. But I want to know what was happening before that. And also, like, did you get a call? Was it like a special, like, secret phone call that you got? Like, <laughs> I got to know how you got to that point and, and what happened as you were doing the portrait. Let's see. 2014, I, or 15, I sent my application in for the National Portrait Gallery portrait competition that's sponsored by these two families. And um, I remember like just being pissed that I had to spend $50, you know, application fees. And <laughs> and like, I really didn't have it. And I'm like, I'm about to give them $50. They're going to make all this money. And I'm sitting here and, you know, whatever, whatever. So uh, some time passed. It might've been almost nine months. And I got the phone call that said I made it to be a finalist. So the, the, the winner gets $25,000 and then you complete a portrait for the National Portrait Gallery, somebody that they wanted in their collection. Mm. When I found out, 
all that to say, to, to get down to the competition, to find out if I even won, I had to borrow 150 bucks, put gas in my car and to rent a dress from Rent the Runaway. Mm-hmm. And like, just to have some spinning change when I was down there, like my account was like zero. So, and I had already done the math. I'm like, okay, if I get, you know, fourth place, then it's like a thousand dollars. So like, that's not going to do much. If I get second place, it's $8,000. So that means I could pay my back rent and like, well, you know, yeah. I already had it planned on like what, what oh, I was going to yeah. do. So, and, and I ended up winning and I was shocked. And again, it was like exactly what I needed for my career at that time. And I was just waiting for something to happen. And I didn't think it was going to be that, but it happened. And so from there, it just so happened that the Obamas were, you know, leaving their administration. And so the National Portrait Gallery submits a folder of artists for them to go through that they would commission to do their portrait for the National Portrait Gallery. So not the official White House portraits, but the the but those specifically well I heard that the list was shortlisted to five people and you know each one of us at some point all went to the White House and sat in the Oval Office and had a conversation with both of them which was really great that was like like mind-blowing I think Mm -hmm. just being there like just I don't know I think there was something about seeing like seeing them in person rather than on television, it almost like it messed with my brain enough that for a split second, I was like, is this happening or am I dreaming? You know, because he was walking towards me and he said, uh, looks like you got the memo. And I'm like, what is he talking about? You know, but we all had on the same color. But I was too nervous (laughs) and I like, (laughs) I like missed the joke. And I was like, I had to click into it. So it was a 30 minute conversation and it felt really good. I can't even remember what we talked about outside of things that I did outside of mm-hmm. outside of painting, which was a lot of community work in Baltimore. And then I found out two months later that she had chosen me to do it. When you got the call that she had chosen you to do it, did you still have the, the feeling of like, I can't believe it? Or, or did it finally feel like yeah, like I am amazing. Of course she picked me. Like, did you did you have that feeling then? Deep down inside, I believe in myself, but I think I'm always like speaking something else. But it was interesting to feel that level of validation mm-hmm. um, and much needed at, you know, 40, 43, 44. Yeah. You know, because by that time you're like, this really isn't cute anymore. Yeah, like I'm exhausted now. <laughs> it was exactly what, again, it was exactly what I needed. Yeah. And, and that's why I really wanted to get into the, like the behind the scenes of this moment. Because, and I say this here and there on the podcast, but this is exactly what the podcast is about, right? People, most people probably looked at you thinking that, at the time that you got the call to do that, that you were living in the same place you're living now or someplace like it and, you know, had a good amount of money in your bank account and we're doing it. It was not that at all. <laughs> like it was what you're telling me is the exact opposite of that. And people need to know that what's for you. And if you're really putting everything into your dreams and you truly believe in yourself, the win, the win is literally around the corner. It's around the corner. 
And the thing is, we can't see it and we can't know that it's around the corner because then we won't appreciate it and it won't be able to catapult our lives after. It won't be able to take us to all the places that we're supposed to go. And I feel like your story is an example of that. So tell me after that, Amy, what has been the biggest blessing to have come out of all of this for you? And what does your life look like now? I think the biggest blessing is honestly that my mom is 85. She's here with me now. She's able to see this and be a witness to it. And you know, experience it. The fact that I'm able to, you know, we, we have a lot of inappropriate humor in our family. So um, (laughs) the house that, that I'm having built for her in Atlanta, we call it her toe tag house. Oh my, what? Oh my gosh. That's dark and sick. So it's lovely. So, you know, I mean, cause we talk about death all the time. I think it's really important. Hmm. Um, to not be surprised by it when it happens. You know, you kind of have to plan for it. So you have those moments. I have these moments with her where I ask her questions and I'm recording her. She may not know it. But um, for her to be able to experience that and for me to be able to gift that to her because I know she worked so hard and sacrificed so much. Um, Even if it was like, you know, the sacrifice she had to make of like not having bragging rights, you know, having to send me money when I was, 34, which, you know, after a certain point, you're just like, if I have to scrub floors, then that's just what I'm going to do. Cause I'm not going to ask my mom for money anymore, you know, but I think money is the biggest blessing. It's, it's allowed me to not only do that for her, but give to institutions, you know, just be this person that I wanted to be, which is like, like I am a giver, right? They say you get money and become even more of what you already are. So it feels good. When I, when I can do things for my friends or, you know, whatever it is that be, be able to like, cause that's one thing I felt guilty about when I was a starving artist was that, you know, my mom would need things and mm. I wouldn't always be able to help her. And I'm like yeah. at 35, 36, like she should be able to rely on me, but I'm waiting tables and, you know, I could pick up a couple of shifts to like help her. but um, it wasn't in a way that I wanted to, and I, I wanted her to live the rest of her days, you know, in luxury and happiness and having experienced everything that she's never experienced before. I want to know, Amy, how do you see yourself as an artist? Ooh. I think that, you know, I had to ask myself that question in that in-between time of like moving back from Columbus, where it's, you know, I moved home for, to take care of my family for four years. I moved back to Baltimore. And as I was trying to figure out what my artistic DNA was, like, what is this work that I want to make for the world? Like, if I'm going to be in a room with all these people, who am I? And what is my voice? And my work represents like how I live in the world. I think it's reflective. The paintings are um, are not passive. They're confrontational in a way that creates a meaningful experience when you're standing in front of it. Mm-hmm. I wanted to create work that tell our story in way in a way that deals with 
our interior space and not a public, the public identity that we, you know, have to contend with and how we're consumed by the world and in the media. So a mirror, like a place of rest, mm. that's usually how I would describe it. It's like a, a place of rest and reflection. That's beautiful. Amy, what's been your takeaway from our conversation today? My takeaway is that, you know, we all have these common experiences that we should share more because people should understand that. I think that, um, and this happened to me, you know, between that zero to the moon, Mm -hmm. it's like you get to the moon and then for me, like the media wrote up my story, like I had just started yesterday. Yes. And I think that people, you know, move into this expecting like instant gratification. And I'm like, no, this is like 15 years of like blood, sweat and tears. You know, it doesn't happen overnight. This kind of thing doesn't happen overnight. Yeah. And I don't think it's sustainable if it does happen overnight, you know? Mm-hmm. because there's things that you need to live out before you get there. Like, I can't imagine what I would be like if this happened when I was 24. Listen, like, would ditto. I have the confidence <laughs> that I have now? Would I be able to take the criticism? You know what mm. I mean? Would I have spiraled out, you know? But like now I know who I am, grounded in my body and my womanhood. I know how to, I know when the criticism is something that I need to hear and able to accept it. And I know when praise is something that's good and, you know, in a way that doesn't let, doesn't, where you don't allow it to go to your head. Yes. But, you know, it, it mattered that I was 45 when this happened for me. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I think being a late bloomer is a resource or mm. in a way, because I, for all those years, got to watch all these people do how they do what they do, right? Like make mistakes or whatever it is. So I had, strategy by the time I got there because I was paying attention. Ooh, because I was paying attention. Wow. Well, Amy, my takeaway is one that I'm just so grateful to have spent time with you. Even if virtually, this is just just sharing this space with you has been a really big blessing to me. But also just the reminder that you're exactly why I created this podcast. For exactly what you said, everybody made it seem like You know, it was that all of everything you just told us on this podcast, they made it seem like it didn't happen (laughs) and that it wasn't important. And I just feel so blessed that I was able to talk about how important it is so that another young woman or young man that is trying to go after their dream will feel more empowered about doing so because they heard your story and they know that you were not just an overnight success. Um, And it also, if I'm honest, Amy, it reminds me that Timing is everything and I'm on the right track. And it's a good thing that, you know, all of the things that are happening in my life now, as you said, didn't happen when I was 24. It's a great thing yeah. that it's happening now because I know who I am. I, I just want to say, Amy, I thank you and I genuinely honor you and your work and everything you represent and that I have a beautiful Black woman like you to look up to always. I just want to say thank you so much. Truly. Oh, you're kind. Thank you. After the credits, 
Amy tells us about the groundbreaking actress she nearly painted a portrait of. Thank you for listening. This podcast is produced by LWC Studios for OWN. The show's executive producer is Juleka Lantigua. Managing producers are Camille Stennis and Paulina Velasco. Editing assistance from Jordan Cowling, mixed by Kojin Tashiro. Assistant producers are Michelle Baker and Shanice Tindall. If you enjoyed listening to this episode, and we hope you do, please make sure to subscribe, leave a rating, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts to ensure you hear the next one. Who is a person from history that you'd want to paint a portrait of? Who would it be and where would it take place? Cicely Tyson. Mm. Yes. I wanted to paint her when she was alive. And uh, we had, we were like two degrees separation away. And so my partner knew somebody who she knew and they asked mm-hmm. her and she was like, why? <laughs> she needs to write me a letter and tell me why. And I was like, okay, I'm gonna write her a letter. But then I was also getting ready for a show. And, you know, one year led to an- another and I never got the chance to write that letter. But yeah, she's somebody, I, she's just a god, a goddess, yeah. Where would you want to paint her? I'm not sure that I would have her in a space exactly, to be honest. Mm. When I thought about her, you know, it's in some kind of abstract, clothing or you know she has a great sense of style and maybe that bob haircut yeah. and um nothing else to focus on but her yes i love that is this house a good price compared to others in the area are prices going up or down if i don't make an offer right this very moment will i miss my chance these are just some of the questions a home buyer might ask. And these are the sorts of questions an agent who is a Realtor can help answer. Because Realtors have the expertise, data, and access to specialty training to help you navigate the process of buying a home. They provide support, guidance, and have your back every step of the way. That's what Realtors do, because that's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors. When your space has the long-lasting, noticeable scent of Airwick vibrant-scented oils, it'll be the spot for everyone. From book club to game night, the kids can even host their friends. Whoa, it smells amazing. Airwick vibrant-scented oils are infused with two times more natural essential oils versus regular Airwick-scented oils for our most authentic, nature-inspired fragrance experience. Hmm. Transform your space with scents like white sage and mahogany or lavender and water lily. Now that's a breath of fresh air wick.